We are going to do a little different kind of message today. And by we, I mean me. Um, so it's different, first of all, because in this series, we've been looking at actual relationships in scripture that fit this model of transforming relationships. Today, we're not going to look at a relationship between two people. Instead, we're going to look at the relationship we have with God's heart. Uh, I'll explain more in a moment. Secondly, almost every other time, I preach on one passage of scripture. But today, I'm going to touch on Scripture all over the Bible. I'm going to tell a story, a story that, that starts in Genesis and goes to the end of the Bible and is still happening today. And I want you to see your part in that story. But first, I want to tell you a shorter story about Carrie and me. And, and I want you to keep it in mind because it's going to come back around at the end of the message today. So uh, when we were in our 20s, we'd just been married a couple of years, and we moved into this drafty, big rent house in Fort Worth. I was studying for the ministry. Carrie was working full-time, uh, paying the bills for us. And, and so we moved into this house, three bedrooms. There's just two of us, but it was affordable. And the reason it was affordable it, is it had no central AC or heat. Uh, the, the AC part was hard. We did have a window unit in the bedroom, so at least at night we were cool. The heat was even harder because it gets a little colder in Fort Worth than it does here. And when there's no heat at night, you get really cold. You can bundle up to your chin, but your head freezes, right? You can't cover your head or you'll suffocate. So it was really hard. There was actually a floor furnace in that house, but it didn't function. And so we just froze for a whole winter. Well, in the meantime, I'm calling the, the, the landlord and just badgering and badgering. And so sometime in that next spring and fall, uh, he, they sent out a, a, a repairman and he fixed that floor furnace. So hallelujah, our second winter, we had actual heat. Problem was, after a while, Carrie said, you know what, I think there's a gas leak. I smell gas. And I said, no, you don't. There, I don't smell anything. She said, yes, I smell it every time I walk in the door. We would literally, we'd go out and then we'd come back from the grocery store or from the little dollar theater where we had our dates and we'd walk through the door and she'd say, don't you smell that? And I'd say, no, I don't smell a thing. And I didn't say this out loud, but I thought she was crazy. I thought she was imagining it. And so I just ignored her until finally she said, Jeff, every day when I come home, I get a headache because of this gas. And so I'm like, fine, I'll call somebody. I'm sure I was very patient, very gentle in the way I said that. And I called uh, a note. That means I wasn't. But uh, I called the repairman. He came out. And y'all, I'm not exaggerating when I say that he didn't even come in the house before he said, man, you got a gas leak because he could smell it outside. And I kind of whacked my forehead and Carrie, to her credit, didn't say, I told you so. She didn't actually say anything, but I saw this little hint, this little look in her green eyes that said, I'm right. You were wrong. It was a look of satisfaction, I guess you could say. And I learned something that day that I've tried to keep in mind the rest of my life, and that is my nose is, is you know, a good size honker, but, and hers is tiny, but I don't trust my nose anymore. I trust hers because she smells better in every single way than I do. <laughs> and ironically, that came into play this week because uh, Tuesday we had a gas leak here at the church and I didn't know about it until Wednesday morning, well before uh, anybody came and Alan's texting me and, and letting me know about this. And he, he, he let me know that the gas wasn't harmful. It's just that kind of rotten egg smell they, they put in the gas so you know it's leaking. And it, the leak had been stopped 
but there was still a smell in the air. And I texted back and I said, well, we've got BSF coming. There's going to be a hundred ladies or more here. And, and we've got all of our office staff and are, are they going to have a problem? Is it going to stop us from having a regular day? And he said, we're just going to have to get there and, and see how bad the smell is. And I'm thinking, not me, I'm not. <laughs> So when I got here, I didn't trust my nose. I, I went around and asked people, is this okay? Can you live with this? Because I learned my nose is not good enough. Now, I want you to keep that story in mind. We'll come back to it. Here's the story of God and us. It starts in Genesis 3, actually, and this isn't going to be on the screen. But if you know the Bible at all, you know Genesis starts with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in this perfect world where they had everything they could want and more. And yet somehow it wasn't enough for them and they turned away from God and they chose their own path. And I think if we're honest, if we put ourselves in God's shoes at that point, after all he'd done for them and to see what they'd done back to him, I think you and I would have said, let's just flush the whole thing and start over. Adam and Eve can rot. We'll, we'll start with somebody else. But instead, Genesis 3 says God goes after them. He goes walking through the garden in the cool of the day and he, he asks a question. He says, where are you? Now, he knows perfectly well where they are. You can't hide from God, the omniscient God. They're, they're cowering in their little fig leaf garments. Why has God asked that question? His question is essentially, what have you done? Why have you left me? I want you back. That's God's heart. When we hurt him, the more we turn away from him, the more we wound him, the more we disrespect him, the more his heart longs for us to come home. We see this in Genesis 12, and here's where we'll really start. Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, from a young age, as a little kid growing up in church, I knew the Jews were God's chosen people. No one ever explained to me what that actually meant. It didn't mean that God loved Jews more than other people today or then. God didn't love the, the Jews back then more than he loves the, loved the Philistines, for instance. God doesn't love the Jews today more than he loves the Palestinians, for instance, or the Americans. Chosen means that God chose the people for a purpose. He says, I have chosen you to be a blessing. I've chosen you so that all families of the earth shall be blessed. See, here's, here's what you need to know. God's heart is for the lost. There was a rupture between God and humanity in the garden, and his solution to it was to bring about this people called Israel, out of whom would come salvation for the nations. And he makes it even more explicit in Exodus 19.6. At this point, it's hundreds of years after Abraham, and his descendants are now slaves in Egypt. And he says, not only am I going to free you from this slavery through all these incredible miracles, but here's my plan. Exodus 19.6 says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy meaning you're set apart. You're not like other countries, but priests. What does that mean, a kingdom of priests? Little kids are priests, old people are priests, men, women, everybody. Well, don't think of priests as someone who wears a collar and, and is a, an officer of a church. In the Bible, a priest was someone whose calling, whose life was, they stood between God and humans. 
And their job was to go to human beings and say, you've sinned and you've walked away from God, but I want to bring you back. I want to offer sacrifices that make you right with God so you can come home, so you can be right, so you can have the life that God intended for you to have. And so Israel's job, this is why they were the chosen people, was they would be a whole nation of priests. They would be a priest nation. They would go to the other nations of the world like a, like a priest went to the other people of his community and, and say to those nations, you're wrong, you're, you're off course, you're, you're, you're headed to a road to destruction, and we want to bring you home. That was Israel's job. Now, question, did Israel do that? No. Most of the time, they did not. The interesting thing is God... God gave them every benefit. And he said, listen, I'm setting you apart. You're going to be this tiny nation surrounded by enemies, but you'll always be safe. You'll always have plenty of food. You'll always be protected without a standing army, without a king or any other human government. You'll have everything you need. The nations will look at you and say, how do you do it? We want to come see. And you'll tell them about me. But ironically, the people of God saw through eyes of fear instead of eyes of faith. They were set apart to be different, and they chose to be like everybody else instead. They were set apart to have a special relationship with God that would draw all nations to him, but instead they said, we're going to have a relationship with their gods instead. And they became like every other country. And so that's when you get to the book of Judges. I don't know about you, but I loved the book of Judges when I was a little kid because it had stories about Gideon and Deborah and and Samson. And I loved those stories and all that violence and all those adventures. It was like superhero stories. And yet when you read it now as an adult, you realize it's a really tragic story because there's this cycle that Israel goes through over and over again where they, they turn away from God and go their own way and forget their calling to be God's chosen people. And then God says, okay, if you want to go your own way, I'll let you go your own way, but you're going to experience the consequences of that decision. And pretty soon they're being invaded and conquered by other countries. And then they cry out to God. They remember they're God's people and they say, hey, God, come save us. And he sends a deliverer, a Samson or a Deborah or a Gideon, and he rescues them. And then a generation passes and the cycle begins begins again. Rebellion, punishment, prayer for deliverance. And then came the day God said, okay, here's what we'll try. We're going to plant this massive temple on top of Mount Zion, the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, highest point in the whole region. People from all around will see it and they'll know that's where the God of Israel dwells, the one true God. Other nations had temples, of course, and they had statues in them that couldn't see or or hear or talk or move. But Israel's temple had the living God inside. You went there, and you got right, and your life was changed. Israel loved their temple. They were proud of their temple. Nobody had anything like it. In Psalm 48, 1 through 2, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. That's Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That's talking about the temple, the holy mountain, Mount Zion. They were so proud of that, and yet they completely missed verse 10. Verse 10 says, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. See, here's the thing, and if you want to know, if you've zoned out and you want to know what the sermon's about, here's what it's about. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is that his praise would go to the ends of the earth. The people of God, back then, they saw this temple on Mount Zion, and they said, okay, we're safe. 
They thought of the temple like you, would, you and I would think of a fortress in medieval times. Uh, in ancient times, when, when you were out in your, in your city or your, your village and you saw an enemy approaching, everybody would run into the fortress, the citadel, and you were safe. And that's the way Israel thought of the temple. You know, we know we're not living the way God told us to live. We know we're not treating our neighbors the way we should. We know we're not using our bodies the way we should. We know that we're not following the law, and we're certainly not being a light to the nations, but God's not going to let anything bad happen to us as long as we got that temple and we keep making those sacrifices morning and night because that's God's house. He's not going to let anybody destroy us because then his house would get burned, and so we're safe. They thought of it as a fortress when God meant it to be a staging ground. Not a place you run to to get safe from the world, a place you get equipped to go out to the world and to take the light with you. And so uh, after a while, God started sending the prophets to try to wake the people up. Y'all, just from a personal standpoint, this last year, I've done something different in my own quiet time. I've just spent the whole year reading the prophets. And, and that's not my favorite part of the Bible. That's not the easiest part of the Bible. There's a lot in the prophets that's really hard to wrap your mind around, and it can be depressing. And part of the reason why was these were people whose job it was to deliver bad news, to essentially come and say, you think you're right with God, but you're not. You think your future is great. Your future is terrible unless you turn things around. The prophet's job was to basically kick the people in the rear end over and over again until they got the message. Nobody likes that kind of treatment. Nobody likes to be talked to that way. And so the prophets, they had a rough life, and the people didn't listen. And so after a while, everything those prophets prophesied came true. And Babylon, this nation from the north that was massive and powerful, came and encircled Jerusalem. And to the very end, the Israelites were saying, yeah, but God's not going to let anything happen to us. A great miracle is going to happen, right? But no, it didn't. The wall was breached and the temple was burned and thousands died and the rest were carried into exile. So imagine being an Israelite who grows up in Persia and everyone you know speaks a different language and everyone you know worships other gods and you're this tiny minority in this distant land and you grow up thinking, well, why, why don't we have the promised land anymore? What's wrong with us? So you go back and you find the scroll of someone like Isaiah, and you read chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. That's the dark part of Isaiah. That's where he's saying, here's what's going to happen, and here's why. And you read that, and you go, okay, now I understand. My grandparents didn't follow God. All those generations didn't do what was right, and that's why I'm living where I'm living now. And then you hit chapter 40, and chapter 40 through 66 of Isaiah is brighter. It's a whole different book. It's, it's, I mean, some scholars even think a different person wrote it. I don't, but some do. It's essentially saying, but I haven't given up on you yet. I still have a plan to you. I'm going to bring you home. And here's what I'm going to do. Look at Isaiah 52.10. He says, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 60 verse 3, he says, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then he ends the book. The very last verse of the book is Isaiah 66.19. He writes, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. Do you hear that? 
I'm bringing you home, but not to stay at home, to go out to the nations like missionaries. He says, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And I know some of the places he just mentioned are unfamiliar to us, but to the people then, they would have been like the ends of the earth. Is this a new message that God is giving them? Is this brand new stuff? No, it's the same thing he told Abraham all those years before. It's the same thing he said in the garden to Adam and Eve. Where are you? I want you home. I'm coming for you. Did the people listen? No. More years pass, and God sends his Messiah, Jesus Christ the one they'd been praying for for centuries, the one who would come and and set things right. And and you have to understand, people of God hadn't changed. They were still thinking through eyes of fear and not faith. They were still thinking that God's job was to protect them, not to send them out. And so when when the Messiah came, they thought, well, good, he's going to punish our enemies and make us safe. He's going to be the strong man who, who... does to our enemies what we wish we could do. He's the one who's going to put them in their place so we can be exalted. But instead, here comes the Son of God, and he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. Blessed when you're persecuted. He's the one who who spends all his time with the kind of people that religious folks like you and me try to avoid. Like, like a, a Samaritan woman who had five husbands and was now living with a man that wasn't her husband, and, and like a guy who was so deranged from demon possession, a Gentile, by the way, that he lived naked in a cemetery, the most ritually unclean place you can imagine. And Jesus went to him. And Jesus went to tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners that, you know, ordinary good religious folks just stay away from. And the people didn't want that. And so they said, let's get rid of him. In fact, what really hurt Jesus, what really led to his death was the people said, you know, if this keeps up and all these sinners keep flocking to him, the Romans are going to get upset. They like things to be peaceful. So they might come and destroy our nation again. So let's get rid of him before something bad happens to us. Do you hear that? Again, it's all about fear It's all about protect ourselves. It's not about God's heart for the nations. So they manipulated the system. They made sure Jesus ended up on that cross. And what they didn't know was in doing that, they were actually playing into God's plan. Because Jesus, when he went to the cross, was not a victim. He was a champion. He died in our place so that we could be rescued. And then three days later, And that's as we sang in that song earlier today, death couldn't keep him in the ground. We sing Christ crucified. Jesus rose from the grave. And then 40 days after that, he ascended back into heaven. But first, he left them with a message. Matthew 28, 19. We call this verse the Great Commission, by the way. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something. Was that a new command? Seriously, was that the first time God had ever said that? No, it went all the way back to the beginning. I'm sending you out to all the nations of the world. I want them home. I want the lost children to come home and be part of our family again. And finally, finally, God found a group of people who would listen. 
Because those early disciples, as flawed as they were, they actually obeyed. And once the Holy Spirit got into them, they really took off. And, and pretty soon, they were known as these men who have turned the world upside down. But they really didn't talk to anybody other than their fellow Jews. Some Samaritans, too. But mainly, they stayed among their own people. And so God said, that's not everything. And he gave them a little nudge. Last week, or actually two weeks ago, we, we studied the story of how Simon Peter gets this vision from God that says, go and take it to the Romans, take it to the Gentiles, and he does. And then later on, these two crazy guys named Paul and Barnabas say, that's not good enough. Let's just go out on our own like pioneers, like, like, like uh, uh, just people who, like explorers, and go to places that have never even heard of the God of Israel and tell them about Jesus and plant churches, and they did. And you know what the reaction was in the church? The reaction was, are you guys crazy? What are you doing? Why are we bringing these dirty Gentiles into our family? And this is our Messiah. What business do they have with him? There was actually a meeting, you can read about it in the book of Acts, Acts 15, where they had to discuss, are we really going to let this continue? Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit won out. Very fortunately, because those of us who have European heritage, the gospel then spread throughout the continent of Europe over the, the next two or three centuries. Pretty soon, every European nation was ruled by a Christian king, or at least a king that identified as Christian. Babies were baptized into the church, and the, the laws were all uh, configured around promoting Christianity, and that seemed like a good thing, but guess what had happened? Once again, God's people had built a fortress Instead of sending themselves out, they'd said, okay, here we are. This is our place, Europe. It's our territory. And by the way, you Jews who live among us, we don't like you anymore. We're going to put you in ghettos. We're going we're to find excuses to kill you because uh, we're the people of God and you're not. And people out there in other lands, that's none of our business. Uh, we don't send missionaries to them. We send armies to kill them and holy wars and crusades. So for hundreds of years, what we call today Christendom reigned. I'm not saying nothing but bad things happened. I am saying that the church lost its vision once again of what God had put us here to do. And so it was that one day, 1,700 years after Paul and Barnabas, there was this, this little cobbler's apprentice in the Midlands of England. His name was William Carey. He had this crazy idea. He started telling people, uh, he was a Baptist. He started telling his fellow Baptists, hey, don't you think that the, the Great Commission still applies today? Don't you think that we're still supposed to take the gospel where it's not been heard and, and, and try to win people to Christ? And his fellow Baptist said, you're nuts. That's none of our business. One guy even said to him in a, in, a, in a big preacher's conference, and I quote, if the Lord should choose to convert the heathen, he shall do so without consulting either you or me. It's none of our business. Africans and Asians and South Americans and all those people, they, that's God's business, not ours. But William Carey was stubborn. And just to get, them, get him off their backs, essentially, they raised enough money for him to take a boat to India where he started a mission. It took him seven years to win his first convert, by the way. But pretty soon, the gospel was spreading throughout India. And pretty soon, other men and women in England and other parts of Europe and America were saying, I feel called to do that too. And that's how the modern missionary movement started. And tonight, when you hear about the missionaries we're supporting around the world, remember, it started with this little guy in England who said, that, that's still the heart of God today. Listen, why do I tell you this story? 
because the story's not over. We're still right in the middle of it, and we're characters in this story. You ever watch a movie and find yourself with more knowledge than the character on the screen, and it bothers you, and you find yourself talking to the movie screen, and you're like, don't go in there, that's where the bad guy is, he's got an axe, or hey, don't trust him, don't you know he's crooked, don't you know he's the villain, or hey, you fool, you better tell her you love her before you lose her forever. It's a terrible thing, right, to know more than the person who's doing the action. Right now, we're the characters in this story. But we have the knowledge of what's happened in the past. We've seen the pattern of time. The pattern is God's people get rescued. God's people get saved. They're re they rejoice in their new life. And pretty soon, they're building walls around themselves and saying, let's keep ourselves safe. They're, they're living by fear instead of faith. They're, instead of seeing the world out there as full of people who are, are lost children of God who need to be brought home, they see instead enemies who need to be crushed, who need to be feared, who need to be demonized. I'm asking you to realize that you can't trust your nose. I'm asking you to say, just because I think, just because I think this way doesn't mean it's right. Just because I feel like it's good for us to be in this building and just hanging on to what we have, hunkering down and trying to ride out the storm, that doesn't mean that's the heart of God. I'm asking you to learn from history I'm asking you to realize that today, fear is monetized. You realize that, right? This is how people get elected, by saying, everything's evil and, and I'm here to protect you. This is how people raise money for their organizations. This is how people get website hits and, and, and TV ratings. I mean, you don't, you don't become famous. You don't become wealthy. You don't become powerful in this world by saying, well, let's think rationally about this. No, you, you become extreme. And you shout and you, you stir up fear. And I'm asking you to not trust your nose and instead to say, you know, God's got a plan to redeem this world. And we're supposed to be part of that plan. So what are we supposed to do? Well, here's what we're supposed to do. Two things that I'm asking you to pray for. That's all. Just asking you to pray. These two things. Number one, ask God to give you his heart for people. And when I say you, I mean y'all, I mean us. Ask God to change the heart of this church so that we would love the lost like he does. I'm not saying we don't love lost people. I'm saying we don't love the lost like he does. Because if we did, we'd see people getting baptized into Jesus' name every single Sunday. Can you agree with me on that? If we had the heart of God that, for the lost, we would see lives changed every week. Ask God to give us that heart. And the second thing Ask him to show you the specific people he wants you to reach. And by you, I mean you individually. Ask him, Lord, who is it whose name you want me to put on this card? Whose story you want me to write on here? Who is it that I'm supposed to be investing in? And again, the moment you start thinking that way, fear is going to jump into your mind and you're going to say, yeah, but that's going to make life complicated and I'm so busy and I'm not qualified and somebody's, what if, what if I say the wrong thing and... Don't listen to fear. Listen to faith. Listen to the heart of God that says, if you just love people in my name and pray for them and look for opportunities to be the presence of Christ, good things will happen. I'm asking you to pray these two prayers and see what God does. Will you do it? That's all.